This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. I've been saying this for a while now, and I, I believe this strongly, that coming up in this federal election this fall, pharmacare, prescription drugs, and all of that are going to be a big issue. I think we're going to see some big promises from some of the political parties when it comes to pharmacare plans. Uh, the federal liberal government took a little bit of a step in that direction, saying that they're trying to deal with this. You'll hear more on that coming up in the news. And it also comes with this report from the Angus Reid Institute that we're going to be talking more about just after the 1030 news. But essentially, it's saying that here in Canada, we have no high horse when it comes to the expense of prescription drugs and how it's impacting Canadians. This report confirms that one in 10 Canadians either haven't filled a prescription drug due to the cost or have even not used it as prescribed in order to make it last longer, such as like skipping dosages or cutting pills in half, things like that, which is not recommended, obviously, because you're not then taking it the way the doctor intended for you to take that might not be effective if you do that. So we want to know, like, you know, we we think we're better off here in Canada, but do you think prescription drugs are too expensive? That's our hot question of the day today. Uh, so go online to simisara980 or at CKNW, cast your vote there. You can email me. If you've got a story, I really would love to hear it because we are. this is going to be a topic that we are covering quite a bit in the next little while. I mean, how much do you pay for your prescriptions every month? Uh, like, If you really notice the prices going up and what has changed, uh, email me, simi at cknw.com. You can also use our buzz line here, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331 one two eight nine nine. You know, we've talked a lot recently about what's going on in the United States when it comes to the price of prescription drugs and how in that country they've been looking towards Canada to provide them with some relief. You know, busloads of people, you know, Bernie Sanders is on the bus coming up across the border to buy things like insulin. But it's not like everything is great here at home either. A new extensive survey done by the Angus Reid Institute shows that the price of prescriptions in Canada is causing problems here. They found that approximately 1 in 10 Canadians had decided not to fill a prescription due to cost or didn't take it as prescribed in order to make it last longer. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Have you done things like that? Well, let's get more into the details of this survey. Joining us now is Shachi Curl, Executive Director of the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. I found these, there's some really surprising results here. We tend to pride ourselves on access to the healthcare system, and your survey shows that not everybody is getting that access. Not everyone is getting it, and in fact, it's almost twice as many who say that they are dealing with access issues. You mentioned one in, in uh, 10. It's actually closer to one in five, about 20%, especially people over the age of 55. They've either chosen not to renew a prescription, they've not filled a prescription, or or they've done things like cut pills in half or take the medication every other day in order to make it last longer. And all of that has to do with their own access to coverage. So when you think about how that is affecting aging Canadians in this country, um, you know, that's upwards of, of 2 million people. It's, it's a lot. And what it represents, I think, is what is going to be not just a defining issue. You talked about south of the border. We all watched the Democratic debates a couple of weeks yeah. ago and, and listened to the candidates uh, in, in the U.S. talking about it. But I have a feeling it is going to be uh, an issue that the left of center parties really tried to define as a ballot issue in this upcoming election in this country. Right. You also took a look at um, what it takes to get medical devices, and you found that there's, a, there's an uphill battle with those as well. That's right. So income is an issue, uh, but really it's just the cost of these issues and and, and the the uh, further impact of, of just, you know, the ability to pay. So have people put off getting a new medical device, a new hearing aid, a wheelchair, a walking aid, uh, better eye care, any of that? Yes, majorities uh, are, are reporting that while they haven't, you have again nearly one in three saying, that they have. Think about three people you know over the age of 55, Simi. Of one of those three people, they are dealing again with an inability to afford yeah. these items. And they're putting off the, the renewal, uh, the purchase of new items that might be working better for them. So why, why do we talk about this stuff? Well, it has to 
with your health and your quality of life. Once those two things go, you know, what's what's left for many people, especially as they look at the, the second half of their lives, health becomes so primary and so important. Right. But I know somebody, just as you were talking about that, I was thinking, I know actually somebody who has needed a hearing aid for probably two or three years now, has been told this by the doctor, but doesn't get it because they're, it's like three to four or $5,000. They're very expensive. Um, lots of items tend to be very expensive when you think about wheelchairs, walking aids, other medical devices yeah. that people need and the coverage around it. Now, of course, this is where policymakers get into, well, you know, we can't pay for everything, but uh, this is again where you've got the anecdote around it. I've got the anecdote around it. Our listeners right now probably know someone who's going through sure. that. And so when you have, for example, the Liberal government talking today about their pharmacare plan, should they be reelected, or when you have the NDP and Jagmeet Singh talking about not just uh, extension for prescription drugs, but also coverage for things like medical devices, things like eyewear. You know, we don't often talk about the absolute monopoly on eyewear in this country for consumers and how expensive a pair of glasses have gotten over the years. That's so true. That is so true. Was this mostly older Canadians we're talking about here? So um, we are focusing with this particular series, it's a four-part series, on Canadians over the age of 55. Certainly we have canvassed and talked to young like Canadians of all ages over the age of 18 in the past, all Canadian adults. But when we focus on really looking at issues within the healthcare system, within access to care, access to prescription drugs... Often when we look at the numbers uh, across the spectrum of age groups, 18 to 34-year-olds, 18 to 40-year-olds often have fewer medical issues. They have fewer sort of wear and tear issues on the body, and they have fewer issues in terms of complex care. If things like mental illness or diabetes or cancer are starting to pop up, of course it happens to younger Canadians, it happens to Canadians of all ages, but it starts to manifest itself and show up a little bit more among older Canadians. So we wanted to understand what is that correlation between aging and people who actually need the medical system a little bit more and their ability to get access to it. Right. So from these problems and what you've heard, and you mentioned like different federal parties talking about this, does this sound like it's shaping up to you to be some big issues in the federal election? Yes, and that's an interesting, that is actually something rather interesting and, and a little bit novel for this election campaign. It is not unusual for Canadians to put health care as one of the top right. two issues uh, in terms of priorities for them in this country. We see that all the time, the economy, economic issues, and health care. But health care has rarely been a ballot issue in election campaigns because the parties uh, all kind of uh, line up against, well, you know, we can't pay too much. We can't let health eat the entirety of the budget. But at the same time, we have to make sure that all Canadians are covered and have access. And that's really sort of been a, 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 a motherhood and apple pie statement on part of all main parties, whether they are right of center or left of center. Nobody's screwing with universal access to health care in this country. So now to hear it come on to the radar with Andrew Scheer, leader of the Conservatives, talking about increasing transfer payments to the provinces. And we talked about what the NDP and the Liberals are doing around pharmacare and other more extensive coverage for medical devices between the two parties. I think that wrapped up within the package of affordability, you're going to be hearing a lot more about medical coverage and pharma coverage in this campaign. Right. You even asked people if anybody had worried about whether or not they could afford, you know, these types of items or this type of access. And that was a pretty high number. That's right. Like concern about the future is is a big, big concern. You know, people future cast, they look at what might happen to them down the road and you know, it may just be human nature to be more anxious about the future than optimistic or confident about it. But indeed, as we start to look at ourselves in the mirror and think about the next 15 to 20 years, uh, you know, what 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 is it going to look like in terms of access? You know, even for myself or for my peers of my age, I'd probably think, yeah, you know what, probably a better idea to ensure that you've got your own 
coverage or your own ability to pay for these extra items that may or may not be covered 20 years down the line. All right, Shachi, thanks so much for talking to us about this. My pleasure. That is Shachi Curl, Executive Director of the Angus Reid Institute. They have just uh, released the results of a, I guess, four-part survey, as she was saying there, uh, that looks into our relationship with the healthcare system, and in particular, when it comes to access to healthcare, in particular, prescription drugs. What is our fascination with this next story? I I don't know what it is. I mean, over the years, there have been lots of cases, crimes committed, some of them come and go, but this one... The, the story of Charles Manson seems to somehow still be deeply embedded. It was 50 years ago that Charles Manson orchestrated the murders of Hollywood elite, really, including a pregnant Sharon Tate and her friends. We've recently seen this once again back in the news with the release of the Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where this is actually one of the side plots of that. It just shows you how embedded into news and pop culture that event, horrific as it was, has become. So Global News reporter Jeff Semple took a look back at this infamous case. He also tried to debunk some of the myths around the man who really has become synonymous with the word evil. If I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. It's been half a century since Charles Manson's name became synonymous with madness. I'd take this book and beat you to death with it, and I wouldn't feel a thing. In the summer of 1969, the American cult leader ordered his followers to murder at least nine people. Manson was convicted of first-degree murder and narrowly avoided the death penalty after California abolished the punishment. Instead, he died in prison five decades later at the age of 83. But the morbid fascination with his story lives on. This is a case that uh, has kept people absolutely fascinated, transfixed, uh, and is really synonymous with the recognition of serial killers. Manson's become this literal shorthand for evil. It is incredible to sort of look around the, the sort of range of material that it generates and attracts. The 50th anniversary of the Manson murders has spawned a host of new movies and books including Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the rehashing of Manson's story is also refueling the many myths surrounding his case, some of which he himself helped to create. The first Manson myth dates back to his childhood, born in Ohio to a teenage mother and an absent father. He spent his early years in and out of prison, mostly for petty crimes. But Manson told much taller tales of growing up desperately poor and alone. One popular myth recalls how his mother actually sold her son for a pitcher of beer. Kind of left out the part that he was raised mostly by an uncle and aunt and a doting grandma who gave him fancy birthday parties, bought him nice clothes. Charlie was a hustler. He was a fraud. Manson used those childhood myths to turn himself into a legend, at least in the eyes of his followers. The so-called Manson family, a cult of as many as a hundred people. Manson's eerie ability to control his followers remains a source of mystery and intrigue. And it's also where we find another Manson myth, his seemingly supernatural power of persuasion. He managed to make the world think he was some kind of mystical mass killer who could control zombie-like followers. And... Absolutely none of that was the case. He had no original philosophies. He stole everything from the Bible, Beatles lyrics, and Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. He never had more than a couple dozen drug-addled teenagers and young people following him, and most of them wanted to leave. But some remained and were even willing to kill for him. Charles Manson never actually physically murdered anybody that we know of. Instead, Manson ordered others to do his dirty work, convincing five of his followers to become murderers. He kind of descended into madness. He had an acid trip where he felt like he was being crucified. And he took that as being uh, that he was the coming Christ. The first victim was Gary Heinemann. 
Manson's friend and fellow musician. Manson needed money to launch his own recording career and sent three of his followers to Heinemann's house. Which brings us to perhaps the most pervasive Manson myth, his motive for the murders. At the crime scene, the words Helter Skelter were written in blood. The title of the hit Beatles tune, which Paul McCartney says describes the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. But Manson had his own interpretation. It just kind of means chaos. It just means craziness. The prosecutor in the court case, Vincent Bugliosi, used the helter-skelter calling card to promote his own theory that Manson murdered members of the Hollywood elite to incite an apocalyptic race war by framing pro-black activists for the killings. Manson always denied the race war theory. The last person to ever interview him was Canadian James Buddy Day. Really the true story is one of drugs and dynamics and and drug deals gone wrong and all sorts of craziness. All these events that just kind of led to these murders. But that helter-skelter theory, which helped to convict him, also turned his case into an international spectacle. The media were looking for someone like Charles Manson to fill that space in 1969. He confirmed and crystallized a lot of the anxieties and a lot of the issues and debates that were then circulating around what we might refer to as the counterculture, but also other elements of American culture like the Hollywood elite. A story of drugs, rock and roll, mind control, and Hollywood race wars. It's little wonder the Manson myths have survived so long. That's Jeff Semple taking a look back. You know, we were talking about this amongst ourselves here. And like, I remember growing up in the 80s, felt like they were always interviewing Charles Manson and putting him on TV from his jail cell, like giving him airtime. And I th- like, I thought, I think times have changed enough where I don't think that would happen today. You know, like a somebody who did the horrible things that he did, if some TV program decided to go to the jail cell and interview this person and give them like half an hour or an hour of time, I think people would rightfully be outraged and say, what are you doing? And yet that was totally normal. So, uh, times have changed in that regard. The story itself still seems to fascinate, but I don't think the platform that he got is something that you would necessarily give um, somebody like that today. Well, given that it is August and we are heading into the weekend, I'm sure many people have plans to either head up to the Okanagan and take a look around. You've probably been hearing in the news about this Eagle Bluff wildfire has gotten quite large. It is more than 2,200 hectares. So what do you need to know about it? Let's find out now with Global News reporter Nitu Garcha, who is on the scene. Hi, Nitu. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. So listen, what area are we talking about here? So this wildfire is burning on the hills north of Oliver, and it is moving away from that community. But despite that, there are still about 250 properties that are on evacuation alert. About 50 of them are on the Asuyas Indian Band land, where, which is where I'm standing right now, looking at some pretty heavy plumes of smoke coming up from the hills behind me. A number of helicopters doing uh, constant circles, uh, filling up with water and then dousing uh, the flames. But they are moving up above and behind a ridge. So again, the fire, uh, much to the relief of many residents who are on edge, is moving away from the community. Like you mentioned, it's now mapping in at just under 2,300 hectares. To give your listeners perspective, on Monday, it was mapping in at about 200 hectares. So it has grown significantly in size. And part of the reason for that is because the BC Wildfire Service has been conducting planned ignitions. So that's in an effort to try and burn the fuels that might uh, cause this fire to grow uh, and lead it to go closer to the community. And apparently two of the controlled ignitions they've done in the last two days have been 100% successful to quote Scott Rennick with the BC Wildfire Service. They've brought in 180 firefighters from all over the province who are working in conditions that are very difficult. It's been over 35 degrees Celsius every day this week. Mm. Yesterday, it reached 39 degrees at one point. So very difficult conditions, but we're told they are making progress. Right. Okay. So, but there's a concern about this weekend, right? When it comes to the weather, potential for some lightning strikes? 
That's right. So there is a storm that's set to come in with lightning and winds, uh, the biggest cause for concern. The winds can be counteracting forces because they can help dissipate the smoke that has a lot of the tourism operators and businesses in the area that have been hit in past years worried about cancellations, but the wind can also help fuel the fire. So uh, the BC Wildfire Service has brought in a total of 13 helicopters, 19 pieces of heavy equipment, and again, 180 personnel who are on the ground trying to get ahead of this weather. But again, it could be pretty erratic winds that are unpredictable and could shift the movement of this fire towards the community. So they are bracing for the worst, but they say that they're as prepared as they can be. Right. So how bad is the smoke problem in Nitu? Because, you know, in years past, this has been the big concern for so many people. That's right. And with the wineries in the area, there's concerns about impacting the grapes and the fruit in the area, uh, as well as, again, cancellations because people don't want a vacation in an area where they'll be breathing in wildfire smoke on a day-to-day basis. But this year, it is not even comparable to previous years, especially when you get down into the communities of Okanagan Falls, Asuyas, and Oliver. The communities themselves don't have significant smoke um, in the mornings and in the late evenings it does build up because that is when they do the controlled burning um, but that is again in an effort to control this fire uh, and then the smoke tends to clear during the day so it is not nearly as bad as these communities have seen in the last two years but uh, their residents here and people in this area know well that it's common for the smoke to come and go uh, the winds could unfortunately make things worse over the weekend oh yeah okay that would not be good so then if it hasn't impacted anything dramatically yet like for tourism or for residents or things like that it sounds like so far it's being managed that's right so the winery owners that we've talked to say that the last two years they saw 10 to 30 percent hits financially to their business solely due from their own estimations due to the cancellations from wildfire related um, smoke Um, they either heard from people who were planning to come or had reserved um, events. One wedding uh, got cancelled apparently because of the smoke last year and that was a huge hit to that venue. Uh, This year, uh, no cancellations have been seen because of the smoke and tourism operators are trying to keep it that way. Right. Okay. So that's actually, you know, promising, I guess, in that regard. Uh, So just fingers crossed then, I guess, for the next couple of days. Absolutely. I think that's what everyone is doing. A lot of the people we talk to in Oliver are saying that this is something that they've just gotten used to, hearing the helicopters flying overhead and seeing the smoke burning on the mountains and seeing it move away from their community is certainly a source of relief for them. And they hope that uh, it's still the case on Monday after this weekend storm. All right. Fingers crossed. Need to thank you. You're welcome. That's Nitu Garcha, Global News reporter. She is covering the Eagle Bluff wildfire that she mentioned is burning outside of Oliver, but moving away from that community. So that's good news. Let's talk about financial transparency. This has been a big issue for some First Nations reserves and their band governments for the last few years. And we've talked about it in several instances where people, band members, have had trouble kind of getting the financial information that they want. It's been an ongoing issue. Well, yesterday, a First Nations activist uh, teamed up with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation to deliver 30,000 petition signatures to the Prime Minister's office. And they're calling on the federal government to enforce the First Nations Financial Transparency Act. So this piqued our interest. We definitely wanted to hear more about this. So joining us now is Muskowikamik Charmaine Stig, who's an Onion Lake Cree Nation member, to talk more about this issue. Thank you very much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. What started this process for you? Um, well, it started back in 2013, um, I used to work for the Onion Lake Band within the uh, financial sector, and I just uh, just realizing uh, the amount of money that you're generating within our oil and gas revenues, and knowing that our operating cost for the whole band was um, more than what each individual member was receiving in terms of distribution with our oil and gas revenues. Um, and then, um, I had, um, I had had a loan with a band, a $700 loan, which I had paid back, but then I was made to pay, pay back again because apparently that money didn't make it from one office to the financial office. So, and, you know, I took, I got all my financial documents in hand, um, went to the RCMP, they, there was nothing that came out of it, so... 
I did more research, and the more I found out about our finances being misused and the amount of money that was that we were um, should have been getting within our oil and gas revenues and living in you know in our um, the conditions that our community members were living in, you know, I didn't find it fair that um, in order for you to reap the benefits, you had to be a banned employee and all other individuals were basically getting scrapped. So. so what happened, though, when you tried to raise awareness of this? Because that seems like a relatively simple thing where you go, wait a minute, what's happening to all this money? Well, because I was a banned employee, you know, I was asking too many questions. I was asking the right questions, but... Um, they didn't like it, so I slowly ended up getting pushed out of my employment. So after I was employed, and then I tried um, uh, going to Indian Affairs, AFN, FSIN, um, uh, reaching out to anybody out there who was um, a political or federal provincial organization that had any business or um, dealings with First Nations people, I tried to reach out to them, but I never got anywhere. So, you know, I was like, okay, well, where do I go? There's got to be somebody out there that can help me, you know, and this is, and I know that this is something that wasn't only happening in my reserve, but a lot of other communities right. too, all over Turtle Island. So, so when you talk so, to other, other <laughs> band members who weren't necessarily like part of the band government, what did the other band members think? Um, some were in support of it. Some knew that, things were not going well and they hadn't been going good for a while. And then there were others where they were like, Oh dude, you don't need to bring this up. You know, everything's okay. You know? And, but I was like, no, it's not okay because you know, we're, we're stealing money out of our children's mouths. We're stealing food out of our children's mouths. Like, you know, why would we do that? Right. And, and it's been going, it's been an ongoing issue for so many years that somebody's got to do something about it, you know, because the whole community is suffering in it. And then I thought like, you know, well, I think maybe somebody like, I didn't know where this was going to go or what I was going to do, but I just wanted to raise the concern and bring an ish- this major issue out to, you know, to the public. Yeah. It needs to be addressed. So you, but you- I didn't expect it to go this way. What do you mean you didn't expect it to go this way, like to get this much attention or to get that many signatures? Well, I didn't expect to, like, you know, have to go through the legal, the legal process of it. I didn't have to. I didn't want to. I wasn't looking to take my band to court. You know, just wanted the financial documents just to prove to the people what was going on and to try and teach my people about how my uh, money was being mismanaged. And then, you know, I didn't expect to, to, um, team up with the CTF of all people, but, you know, it worked out that way. And then, you know, going through this year, five-year-long process and having to deal with um, so much backlash, um, losing basic services that, you know, each membership are entitled to within each each nation. Right. What happened when you went to court then? Did you get that information? Well... Yeah, the, 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 uh, initially the judge was in favor of uh, uh, releasing the documents to me, not particularly the, C- the CTF, but me as a membership because I had every right to have them. Yeah. So um, uh, the court ruling was in my favor, and then Anya McBan, they appealed it, and again on the appeal, we won. So they finally released the documents, but they only released 2015 and 2016 documents and I really wanted the 2017 documents because they were they were very important because there was a lot of things that happened within our community in regards to finances in 2017 right I guess but they they wouldn't give them to me they said talk to your lawyer so I was like okay and I called my lawyer again told him what they said and we took them back to court and you know for contempt because they refused to to give me those other documents does and it, then here, the judge, Judge McCreary, um, said that held on and making contempt for not providing the documents also imposed a $10,000 fine on Onionate Band if they do not disclose the information to me by August 31st. And we didn't ask for them, the judge to impose a fine. It was just 
third decision. Does it seem hard to believe, though, that this point, like where we are, that it would still be so hard to get basic financial documents and information? Well, uh, after five years, I didn't think I didn't think it would still be like this difficult. But, you know, like um, the only way I can the only way that I can, you know, make any sense of it is if they're not willing to provide these documents, the ones that are the certain ones that I've asked for, then that means there's something there that they don't want others to, to know or to see or to find out, you know. And so you want the First Nations Financial Transparency Act to be enforced. So what does that mean? Like what what was there what is there in that act that would change this? Well, this way um all band memberships and um any other um Canadians would be able to have access to basic financial information because I know in you know rural municipalities or even in any level of government they have to be open and transparent in regards to their finances. So that shouldn't be any different for First Nations, but yet our our Nehawag, our First Nations, our communities have always lacked transparency and accountability because we've allowed it to happen for too long, for so long that it's become normal. It's become a norm in our society today. Right. It's almost so seems like the band saying, members accept it because if you yeah. can't, yeah, right? Like you're wondering why didn't more people, I think, come to your aid and demand more? Yeah, especially the ones who knew what was going on or were a part of it. Like, you know, they just, you know, turned a blind eye. But then it's it's time that we we look at things with both eyes, not, you know, take our blinders off and start, you know, doing what's, what's right. What happens next? Just, um, in terms of what, there's a... Like, where can you go with this? So you've done this petition. Do you want to see other bands across the country, well, you know, stand up for this? Since I've started this, there, I've had a lot of um, First Nations members from all over Turtle Island contact me. You know, like I said, this is an issue that's been ongoing for so long. And, you know, there's people out there that wanted to stop. They wanted to end. They want to set things right now. And it's for all future generations, not only in our community, but for all, like, even to all Canadians out there. And it's um, it's going to help us to become more self-sufficient, self-reliant, you know, we're going to, it's going to help us prosper because, you know, stealing from, from our, our children, our grandchildren isn't helping anybody in any way at all. Well, you know, it's just making things worse. Well, thanks for talking to us about it and good luck. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I, well, good luck with the uh, court fight. Hopefully it goes well for you. That is Muskowicka makes Charmaine Stick, an Onion Lake Cree Nation member, who yesterday, along with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, delivered 30,000 petition signatures to the Prime Minister's office. Let's get an update now on the story that you've been hearing about in the news today. This is about the 14-year-old boy who died after we, he was found in critical condition at the Walnut Grove Skate Park in Langley. This is on Wednesday night. Now, this park is right next to the Walnut Grove Community Centre. And all we know right now is that the BC Coroner Service says that the boy died suddenly and unexpectedly. Lots of investigation going on into this. There was a candlelight vigil as well last night, but let's get more now with Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Simeon. You know, this story uh, appears to be a very fluid story because we are getting more information hour by hour, and yesterday it was the very same thing. Uh, We have three agencies now involved in this investigation. We, first of all, have the Langley RCMP, we have the IIO, and we have the BC Coroner's Service. So they're all involved. And let's walk it back from the beginning, Simi. What we have, 14-year-old, and we've named him now because his name is out there on social media. Friends are naming him. The school is naming him. His name is Carson Kremeni. He died Wednesday night in hospital after he was found, as you say, at the Walnut Grove Skate Park in critical condition in Langley. Uh, The Langley RCMP put out a news release last night saying the teenager was pronounced dead after what is believed to be an overdose on narcotics. Right. And they also say that the serious crimes investigators uh, want to speak with anybody who may have any information. And also if anybody saw the lad interacting with others 
throughout Wednesday. Um, we are also told that he not only visited the skateboard park on Wednesday evening, but he was also in the vicinity of the Walnut Grove Secondary School and also the Walnut Grove Athletic Park, which is right behind the high school, and there's a track in that area as well. Now, What's interesting in all of this, Simi, initially the Langley RCMP yesterday, uh, when I contacted them, said they couldn't speak about this case at all, and mm-hmm. they referred all the calls to the Independent Investigations Office of BC, which of course looks into police-involved cases right. that result in death or injury. Uh, because they told me police were in the proximity when the teen was found at the skateboard park on Wednesday night. But then, of course, last night... Uh, they put out this news release with some new information. Um, I did contact the IIO yesterday. They gave me a little bit of information as well as the coroner's service. So, you know, it's sort of all coming together. Now, the latest information we have from Langley RCMP after I talked to them again this morning is that uh, they are meeting right now senior investigative officers, and they will be putting out another release shortly. When that may be coming, I don't know. But... In the meantime, we also have found new information. Our newsroom, Global CKNW Newsroom, has uh, found some new information. And let me tell you, it's very upsetting information that we have come across. There are a series of videos that are circulating on social media, and they appear to show Carson highly agitated, surrounded by a group of teenagers in that skateboard park who are laughing and listening to music. And the video shows the teen's condition appearing to worsen throughout the string of video clips. And at one point, a naloxone kit can also be seen on the ground. Now, Carson's father, whom we've reached out to, Aaron, said uh, that he has heard that other teens in that park may not have helped his son, saying he hopes that if this is true, that they are held accountable. So this is the new information that has come to light, and presumably Langley RCMP will be addressing um, what we have discovered this morning about uh, these videos that are now circulating on social media. Wow, Janet, this story just gets so bizarre. That must be awful for the parents to be finding out all of this information, like they probably just thought their 14-year-old son went to the skate park. What the heck happened? And the father last night uh, at the vigil talked about how his son loved to get on the bus and go up to that skateboard park. And it's very popular with young people in the Langley area. It's a great area for the kids to hang out. And as you said, it's right beside the rec center where kids can go swimming. There's ping pong tables outside. It's a good gathering spot for young people. And I think not only for the parents to hear this, his friends, but I think the community in general. Eight o'clock at night, Wednesday night, it was a lovely evening. There's homes and that's a busy street in Langley where people are driving up and down all the time. You can see the skateboard yeah. park from the street. What happened? What happened there that night? There's got to be plenty of people who saw or heard something. And I'm sure investigators are just working overtime to figure out what happened that evening and what's going on. And hopefully they will have some more information soon to provide to the public because this is a very, very troubling case, as I say, not only for the parents of this young man, it's a tragic, tragic story, but I think for parents in general whose kids go to that skateboard park and for parents in general, I think, Simi. Absolutely. I'm thinking that if any parent knows that their kid goes to that park, they want to be having a chat with their child today because as you pointed out, there's numerous uh, kids who were at the park at that time in those videos. Absolutely. And I know I've been to that skateboard park with my son many times. He loves it there. It's fun for kids. It's a great place to hang out. But you know what? As a parent, when my son goes there, I always go too because I just like to see what's going on there because not all kids are good all the time, you know, and it's good to have some sort of supervision at those parks. But, you know, the older the kids get, they don't want their parents hanging out there and and watching them. So, you know, for the most part... And you think skate park next to community center, you know, in Walnut Grove, where everybody knows everybody, how, how does something like that happen? 
Absolutely. So hopefully we are going to get some more information. The parents are going to get some more information from the RCMP today. And as I say, the RCMP are working overtime to try and delve into this case. And hopefully, Simi, too, as you say, that people who saw something, heard something, know something, will come forward and speak up and do the right thing. Okay, so do police, do they want to talk to or identify the other kids who were at that park, like in those videos? Well, right now, the RCMP um, aren't even referring to these videos yet, Simi. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they are not even acknowledging that they are out there. Um, Maybe they will in the news release later today, but right now we haven't heard from the RCMP in terms of the videos. It's just something that that is circulating um, out there right now on social media that we have come across as well. So that's where it stands at the moment, Simi. As you said, fluid story. Janet, thank you. You're welcome. That's Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown talking about this 14-year-old boy, Carson Kermeni, who has been identified as friends and family now as the boy who was found at the Walnut Grove Skateboard Park on Wednesday evening. Life, it seems, has a trajectory. Most of us think that it works in a pretty similar way, right? You go to school, you get an education, and then you work for like four decades or so. And then in your 60s, you settle down and retire. That all sounds pretty familiar, right? Well, our next guest says that we have to stop thinking like that, that we need to make more of our longer and healthier lives, and that we all need to stop fretting about getting older. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. Carl Honoré has written a book called Boulder, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives, and he joins us now to talk about us and our attitudes. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. What got you thinking about this topic? Well... it's age, right? I mean, I think we all have a moment when suddenly the number starts to weigh really heavily on our shoulders. And the moment of truth came to me when I was at a ball hockey tournament and, you know, playing well, having a great time leading my team into the semifinals. And then just by chance, I discovered that I was the oldest player at the tournament. (laughs) And something about that, 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 that news, that knowledge just hit me like a sack of bricks, you know, and I began to think, I began hearing all kinds of questions in the back of my mind, you know, should, do I belong here, right? Are people laughing at me? Am I the hockey equivalent of the 50-something guy with a 20-something girlfriend? And, it, and I began to play less well. I began to you know, play like, I guess, what I imagined an older person was. And, and that was, for me, a, a moment of epiphany after that tournament. I just thought, well, why? Why should I feel so ashamed, so guilty, so held back by that number on the birth certificate? And that was kind of the starting point for writing this, this book, because I just felt, like a lot of people do, I think, nowadays, that aging is a... It's a game of, you know, loss, decline. It's something we feel bad about on every score. And I wanted to see if there was a a good news story to tell. And the good news is that I found that there's a very good news story to tell about growing older nowadays. Okay, so you're saying essentially that we second guess ourselves when it comes to our age. I think so. I think that we hear a little voice in the back of our minds and it's often whispering, I'm too old for this, right? So you're thinking, well, I'm 40, I'm too old to launch a startup. I'm 50, I'm too old to learn a new language. I'm 60, I'm too old to take up kite surfing. Or I'm 70, I'm too old to fall in love again. And the truth is that that is not true, right? Obviously, people change as they grow older, and some things we lose along the way, but many other things get better and other things stay the same. And really what I'm trying to say in the book is that we need to move away from being boxed in and cubbyholed by the number on our birth certificate and try and design whatever age we are, whether we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, 70s, 80s, to design the life that works best for us rather than feeling that we have to follow some kind of script yeah. that's been handed down by, through the generations or pushed upon us by the media or by other people. Okay, so what is the good news that you found when you were doing this? Well, my view of aging was that it just it was all downhill from basically 35, right? Uh, but in fact, there are so many things that do, do surprisingly get better. I mean, one thing is that you get older and you have more self-confidence, right? You, that, you have that ease in your own skin that you don't have so much in your 20s and you worry much less about what other people think. The famous agony aunt, Ann Landers, had a wonderful quote. She said that at 20, we worry about what other people think about us. At 40, we stop worrying about what other people think of us. At 60, we realize that other people are never thinking about us at all anyway, right? <laughs> and I think there's a, it, that speaks to that kind of lightness, I think, that comes upon you. And I'm now 51 myself, and I feel it. You know, I just feel less held back, less beholden to what other people think. You know, if I'm going to want to wear a, a raffish hat or, you know, change jobs or, do, you know, do, I'll just do it, right, in a way that I think that I, would, I know I would not have done so much in my 20s and 30s. And another thing that's, that really blew me away in terms of surprise about how things can actually get better is that 
we have a, a narrative in our culture that tells us that older is sad, right? It's all about kind of loneliness and sad and the miserable old cantankerous old person, right? But the truth is, if you look at the numbers, that the adult age group that reports in Canada and elsewhere around the world, the highest levels of life satisfaction and happiness is not the under 30s, right? It's, yeah. it's, people over 60, it's the people over 60, right? And yet the culture constantly bombards us with this, this idea that old equals sad, old equals miserable, old equals, you know, cranky, all that grumpy right. old person, all those stereotypes that, that box us in. And, and, of course, I'm just scratching the surface. There's so many other things that can get better. People, work performance improves, productivity goes up, uh, creativity holds and gets better for a lot of people. We have often fewer relationships in later life, but they're often deeper, richer, more nourishing, they're stronger. You know, there's just so much out there to look forward to. And I, I wanted to take down this idea that the cult of youth, essentially, right. that, that younger is always better and that there's nothing to look forward to because it's just patently untrue. Now, you, you, I know you talked to a lot of people and you found a lot of people who had lived like longer, happy, healthy lives. What was the common denominator for those people? What was the secret? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that people... We, we do hear this now. You can't say we don't. In, in the culture, we're always being told the, the, that basic recipe, you know, exercise, eat a healthy diet, drink in moderation, don't smoke, all those obvious things. But the thing that really jumped out for me was how much attitude to aging was crucial. Because nowadays, our really big problem is not aging. It's ageism, right? It's that negative stereotype about growing older. Because they've shown very clearly that if you have a downbeat, unfavorable view of aging – then you're going to age less well, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to be more likely to develop uh, cognitive problems like maybe dementia. You're going to recover less well from illness. You're going to move more slowly, think more slowly. Uh, all the things that you essentially the, 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 the grim view of aging becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So one of the common threads I found among people who are, you know, aging well, aging on their own terms, aging boldly, to echo the title of my book, was that they had an upbeat view of aging. You know, they not a kind of Pollyanna, oh, it's all going to be a land of milk and honey. They understand, as I do, and as anyone who's done any kind of work on aging knows, that certain, some things you lose along the way. You know, your body's not going to work as well um, as yep. it did, you know, in your 60s as it did in your 20s, right? That's just <laughs> yeah. always going to be the way. Everything hurts, though. at the though. same time, they have an upbeat. They, they, they see the upbeat as well. So they see the rough, they yeah. accept the rough, embrace it, but they also take smooth and run with it. And that's the really defining characteristic, I think, of people who are aging it's well so and hard, aging though. boldly. It's so hard, Carl, to stay positive like that, though, because as you're saying, yeah, your body changes and all of a sudden things are hurting when you get up in the morning. You're like, that never used to happen. So we see the physical signs and we feel that. It must be, it's so hard for people to kind of break out of that. Oh, no, no, this is okay. I'm going to be fine. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm, it's, again, it's not something that you just snap your fingers and one day you wake up, you know, full of uh, sunny optimism for the future if you've been a very downbeat view of, of, of aging. Of course not. It's a process. But I think one of the things to hold on to here is that the changes, that, that the un unwelcome changes that come upon us tend to come upon us very gradually, right? You don't just wake up one morning with aches and pains. They sort of develop over time, and, and not everybody will suffer from exactly the same aches and pains. One of the things I did for the book was wear uh, what's called an aging suit, which puts 30 years on your age. And that was, to me, horrifying, right? Because it just gave you every, it was like the full English breakfast of, of bad aging. You had Ooh. everything was wrong with you and it gave you macular degeneration. You couldn't hear anything. You couldn't move. It was just, it was a nightmare. And I thought when I first wore that suit, I thought, goodness me, I'm barking up the wrong tree here. Aging really is a nightmare. But of course, the aging suit gives a false view of aging for one, one reason being that not everybody suffers from every ailment that comes along with aging. But secondly, you have all that time to get used to it. To adjust, you know, I let's go back to ball hockey with me, right? I don't have the strength, the speed, and the stamina I did when I was in my twenties, but I'm still loving the game. I've adjusted yeah. the way I play. I maybe take more time to recover, but I I look forward to ball hockey as much at 51 as I did at 21, right? And that's the key. It's kind of a lot of it comes down to to mindset, I think. Interesting. So can we do this, though? Like, Because you're retiring in our we 60s. You're saying, what do we need to do to change this? We're not just going to retire in our 60s anymore. We have to be thinking beyond that. Exactly. And I think that's a, that's a, liber it's a frightening thing, in a sense, because it's change, but it's also immensely liberating. We've inherited a real rigid life path. You alluded to it in your introduction, the kind of learning education in our youth. Yeah. You know, parent, parenting for many people that are working in their middle years, and then this pensioned retirement or rest at the end. And that just doesn't make sense anymore. It worked in a world where people 
you know, retired in the early 60s and then probably lived three or four more years and then checked out. That, you know, people retiring in their 60s now are looking at living in Canada, a good chance of living 20, 25, 30 years more. So what do we do with that? And one of the things that I'm arguing in the book and one of the things I think I see happening more and more in the culture is that we're throwing out that rigid three-step life path and we're creating something much more fluid. So we're saying you, you don't just learn in your teens and 20s, you carry on learning throughout your life. You know, you don't just care for people or do volunteering in your pension years. You do that throughout your life. You work throughout your life as well, but not always, you know, full time. There'll be times when you're going to work longer hours, times you're going to dial it down. You know, later in life, especially very later in life, you're probably you're not going to be doing an 80 hour week. Right. But you might want to do an 18 hour week. Right. Or, or you know, so I think it's, it's just perspective is what you're saying. Uh, I'm sorry. It's perspective is what you're saying. It's like we just need we need to change how we look at these things. We do. We need a completely new lens when it comes to thinking about aging. And I'm a natural optimist, and I think that we will get there, and we're taking the first steps. But, you know, we're talking about turning around a a super tanger here. But the the, the upside of all of this is that we are actually, I think, entering a golden age of aging. This has never been – there has never been a better time – to grow older in human history than now, right? For so many reasons, better technology, better medicine. Uh, you know, there's just so many things that make growing older easier, better, more fun, and easier to do, to do boldly. And one of them, which I think we maybe don't talk about enough these days, is the, just the demographic shift, right? There are more and more older yeah. people in Canada, say, every year. And that changes things. It changes the media landscape. It changes what you see when you walk around Vancouver or Victoria. It changes what, changes what you see on social media. And that's beginning to trickle now into how we feel about aging, I think, because we're seeing more and more examples of people who aren't you know, putting on elasticated um, trousers and sitting in a, in a rocking chair or you know, and, and they're, they're going out there and they're taking up kite surfing in their 80s. Or, yeah. So there are these role models that are saying, you know what, aging doesn't have to be a millstone or a game of loss. It can be a whole range of things. And, and one other thing I want to just underscore before we sign off is that what we do want to avoid is creating a new set of pressures on people to age in a particular way, right? Because not everybody right. can age the same way. Not everybody can be Helen Mirren, right? Or, or um, Clint Eastwood or, or George Clooney or, or Nancy Pelosi or, or David Attenborough, right? Whoever, not everybody yeah. can be that or, or would even want to be, right? I think what we need to be moving towards, and I do think we're going that way now, is, is a much more broad spectrum of opportunities for people. People can choose their own life path. If you want to grow older and that to you is going to mean just doing a bit of gardening later on and playing with the grandkids, then that's fine. You don't have to climb Kilimanjaro, right? That sounds like my retirement right there. Not the Kilimanjaro, (laughs) the gardening and the playing with the grandkids. Listen, Carl, thanks so much for your time on this today. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate Bye-bye. that. That is so fascinating. That's Carl Honoré. The book is called Boulder, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives. And if his name sounds familiar to you, it's no surprise. Uh, his previous book, he's an international best-selling author. His previous book was In Praise of Slow. Remember that? The, the slow movement? Yeah.